The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, again, it's a delight to minister God's Word to you. Is everyone hanging with me? Good. And so I invite you once again to please turn with me in your Bible to our text in view in Ephesians 6 once again. Ephesians chapter 6, as we come to the third message in our series entitled, Spiritual Warfare, Satan, His Schemes, Our Arsenal, and the Victory. Ephesians 6, as we come to focus specifically on verse 14, as we begin to take up the first two pieces of our armor for spiritual warfare, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this section of Scripture by the direction and aid of the Holy Spirit, says the following. Ephesians 6, at verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Dear sisters, let's once again pray and ask the Lord's blessings on our time. Our Father, we are mindful that you've told us in your word that we are to seek your face for help. Seek My face, you said to the psalmist, to which he replied, saying, Your face I will seek. And so we seek you this morning for fresh help from on high. You've told us, O Lord, in your word, that man shall not live by bread only, but by every word that goes forth from the mouth of God. Lord, we need your words this morning. For it is only your word that builds up and sanctifies and convicts and challenges and conforms us more and more into that blessed image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Father, we're asking this morning that you would hedge us in. We're asking, O God, that you would bar the evil one from this place so that he might not take any word of God from us. We ask, O Lord, therefore, that your word would run and have free course in our midst. And that these dear sisters here this day might be built up in their most holy faith. That they might stand strong in their Savior all of their days. O God, give us grace for these various ends. We ask and pray them all through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. On October 27th, 1861, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great Reformed Baptist preacher from another generation, preached a sermon from Ephesians chapter 6 concerning our topic at hand. And he introduced his message with the following words. He said, quote, Like the Spartans, every Christian is born a warrior. He said the believer will have to defend earnestly the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For he will have to resist the devil. And he will have to stand against all of his wiles. And having done all, he will have to still stand. Well... As we've already seen in our exposition of this chapter, Mr. Spurgeon is 100% correct in what he said. My dear sisters here, this day as Christians who have been delivered from the powers of darkness and translated into the glorious kingdom of God's dear Son, you and I have been called to fight in spiritual warfare. As believers, we are soldiers in Jesus' army. Therefore, if our invisible enemy is not to wreak havoc in our lives, then you and I must stand against him. And this by knowing what our spiritual weapons are and how they are to be applied in this great fight of all fights. Well, in view of this, the central question at hand for our time together now is, How do you and I stand biblically against the great enemy of our souls? The question is, what spiritual weaponry 
has the Almighty God given to us in his word so that you and I will not be hindered as we make our way to heaven. Well, this is what we're going to begin to consider in this message as we start to unpack each of the six pieces of our spiritual armor, which God in grace has so richly provided his people. Having already told us in the previous verses that because of our union with Christ, we have Jesus' resurrection power available to us as we put on the whole armor of God. Now we begin to consider the very practical matter of what it actually means to do this so that we can stand effectively as God's people. Now as we begin to take up this matter of the armor that we are to wear, I should say something briefly about the portrait that the Apostle Paul puts forth in verses 14 to 17 of this chapter. The question has been asked, maybe you've asked it yourself. Uh, Where did the Apostle get his imagery from? with reference to the various pieces of armor concerning the sword and the uh, breastplate, etc. The helmet, you know the language. Well, in answering the question, most commentators are agreed that Paul most likely got this imagery here from the Roman soldiers who would have been all around him at this time in his life. As you may recall, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison for preaching the good news of Jesus. And so... In view of this background information, the idea of him drawing spiritual lessons from what the soldiers were wearing, who were before him, makes sense. And this seems to be the main source of his illustration, as we shall see. Now, having said this, I think that such an idea as this alone falls a bit short of what we know about the Apostle Paul, which is to say that the Apostle Paul was thoroughly versed in the Old Testament. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, simply put, the Apostle Paul was an Old Testament scholar. He was an Old Testament scholar. He was one who had been thoroughly trained in everything in the Old Testament, being in his own language a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so while, no doubt again, he most likely got his imagery in our passage from uh, the Roman soldiers which were before him, that's a given, Dear ones, it also could very well be that he drew his language here from his vast knowledge of the Old Testament where we're told, for example, that God himself covered himself with such a covering. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, then you will know that the Lord is in fact described in it as the well-armored warrior king of his people who at all times is ready to defend them when they find themselves in trouble. This is the case, and this is set forth in several passages. Thus, if you're taking notes, note Isaiah 42 and verse 13. For there we're told that the Lord shall go forth, quote, like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like, quote, a man of war. That's the Lord our God. The prophet writes, he shall cry out. Yes, he shall shout aloud and he shall prevail against his enemies. Additionally, in this regard, Psalm 18. Psalm 18. We see that David calls upon the Lord to fight for him. That's something we ought to do oftentimes. Lord, this battle is too much for me. Fight it for me, O God. He called on God to fight for him. Thus he says, Psalm 18, verse 2, that, quote, the Lord is my rock, he is my fortress, and he is my deliverer. He said he is my God in whom I trust. Well, thirdly, then, in this regard, again, if you're taking notes, there is that classic passage found in Isaiah chapter 59, which seems to form uh, some of the structure of what Paul is speaking of here in our passage in view from Ephesians Chapter 6, there in Isaiah 59, again, get the reference, 15 to 17. Isaiah, in writing about the sad state of the people at that time, says, quote, The Lord saw that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered why there was no intercessor. Therefore, we're told that God's own arm brought salvation or deliverance for him, and his own righteousness sustained him, for he... That is, the Lord himself, Jehovah, put on, listen, righteousness as a breastplate 
and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and he was clad with zeal. Now, again, all of this language here concerning God, I believe, and most scholars agree, that this language with reference to God is interwoven into Paul's thinking here at this point in this letter. Here we see that it is God himself who wears spiritual armor as he goes to war against his foes, which, by the way, are our foes as well. And so you ask, what's the point of me highlighting all of this with reference to Paul's words? Well, the point is that while in fact, listen, while in fact the armor that you and I are to wear against Satan comes from God as we've already seen, dear sisters, also understand that it is an armor which God himself wears and shares with us through Jesus. That's the point. To state the matter another way, listen, as Christians, you and I have the whole armor of God at our disposal, which is to say we have an armor which God himself owns and supplies to us in our battles with Satan, and what an encouragement this should be to us. And so, as Paul begins here, to prepare us for the crucial battle at hand, He starts off in verse 14 with two very important words, and I ask you once again to note them with me in your Bibles. Look at what he says. He writes saying, stand therefore. Have we heard that before? Paul repeats himself, Jeff. It's okay to repeat yourself. Stand therefore. If you've been following closely the last couple messages, specifically the last one, then you know this is now the fourth time, four times, that Paul calls us to stand in a very short span of time. Here the idea again is that Paul is so struck with the seriousness of the subject at hand and are doing well in it, that just as he did in 11b of this chapter, then twice in verse 13, here now he once again implores us not to surrender, no, Not to advance, no, but rather to stand. That's the command. He says that we are to hold the spiritual ground which our Lord Jesus Christ in grace has already gained for us in our lives through his death, resurrection, and exaltation to the right hand of God on our behalf. Glory be to his name. Hold the ground which Jesus in grace has granted you. Now that Paul here inserts this little word, therefore, after his command to stand, shows us that he's connecting his current thought to what he previously wrote. And so what was that thought? Well, as you may recall, he says in the prior verses, specifically in verse 13, That you and I as Christians are to take up the whole armor of God to the end that we might be able to withstand in the evil day. That is, the specific evil day when the devil or one of his cohorts attacks us. Here, as uh, Paul says, and as he's thinking about uh, this whole topic, he says, if you and I are going to be putting on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the devil, he says, do this, and so in view of this reality, he says in 14a, so as to reinforce the end goal for us, stand therefore. He says, as you do this, you are to stand therefore. Do it. Why? What will happen? You'll stand. Stand, fully clad with all of God's armor upon yourself. And so having said these things, which we've considered in the last message, We need to ask now, what is the very first line of defense, if you will, that Paul would have you and I as Christians to have on ourselves so that we can stand against the evil one? If, in fact, we're going to stand strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, being fully covered with his armor, what is the first essential spiritual weapon in this fight against the enemy of our souls? Well, Paul tells us next in the verse when he says, look at the words again. He writes saying, stand therefore, that is fully covered with 
the full armor of God. Stand therefore, how? Having girded your waist with truth. If you're taking notes, first line of defense, here it is. Stand girded with the truth. Now this symbolic language here of us girding our waist with truth portrays a belt. Hence, one version of the Bible translates the words as saying, Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. Again, it's metaphoric language. Now, the apostle's imagery here uh, seems to be derived specifically from a soldier's custom in his day of shortening the long flowing robe that he wore as an outer garment. Historically speaking, scholars tell us that ordinarily, in the first century, a soldier's robe would be loosely uh, draped about his body. However, when he was preparing for battle, he would tuck the ends of the robe in the belt or underneath it, which gave him freedom of movement to be able to fight. And then he would tighten his belt, which means now he was ready for combat. Outer garment, fight's coming, stick it under the belt, tie the belt, now I'm ready to engage in combat. And so when thinking about this point here, we ask, listen, how does this imagery here apply to us practically speaking? When Paul says that in spiritual warfare, if we're going to do well in it, you and I have to have our waist girded or more literally surrounded with truth. Practically speaking, what does all of this mean? Well, dear sisters, in summary, the answer to the question is, listen, that as a soldier's belt was placed at the center of his body and was essential in his natural warfare for holding all of his other garments and weapons in place, the point is, as that was so, so also truth is to be central in our lives as believers, encompassing all that we do. First line of defense. What is it? Truth. Truth. Remember, the devil is a liar, Jesus said, and the truth is not in him. How do we stand against him? Answer number one. I want to see it in all your notes later. Truth. Truth. Let me make it as plain as possible. And say, listen carefully, that without truth being in us and all around us and central to our lives as the people of God, we will most surely stumble in our clashes with Satan. Without truth, being at the core of our beings and our hearts and in our minds so as to function spiritually as a belt for us. Again, the devil who is the father of lies and opposes the truth will have opportunities to take us down deep, dark, spiritual paths which you and I would not want to go down. He would have that opportunity to do it. Paul says, as I'll speak of in one message in Ephesians 4, I believe, give no, what? Opportunity to the devil. Could I give opportunity to the devil? You better believe that's the case. Don't give opportunity to Satan. Give him no foothold. Now the question has often been asked of whether the truth here that Paul speaks of in our passage, is to be understood as the objective truths of God and Christ and the Trinity and the gospel is found in the word of God, or does it refer more specifically to the subjective aspect of truth? That is to say, you and I walking in the truths of God as the redeemed people of the Lord. Objective truths or that more subjective aspect of us serving the Lord in truth? Now, while many commentators fall on either side of this discussion concerning the whole matter, to me, since Paul uses the noun in this letter in both ways, both objectively and subjectively, I don't think we need to decide between the two at all, to be honest. So we ask again, what exactly is the specific truth 
that is to constitute all that we are as Christians so that we will be kept safe from Satan. What truth are we responsible to spiritually clothe ourselves with each and every day in our lives? Well, again, as I said to me, the answer is really twofold. It's really twofold. Which is to say that as the people of God, God's objective truths concerning who he is, who Jesus is, and what the gospel is, etc., is to be absolutely central in our lives. No compromise, dear sisters. While at the same time, listen, we are ourselves to be regularly walking in God's truths as found in his word being people of moral virtue and gospel integrity if we're going to be kept safe from Satan and his schemes. Just the objective truths? Again, you read multiple commentaries, and I do. Many of them will say, oh, it's just the objective truths of God. And you read others, it's just the subjective truths of God. Which is it? It's both and. Because again, Paul uses the word in both ways throughout this letter. And so, in view of all of these things, I must pause, dear sisters, to ask all of you who name the name of the Lord, listen, are the objective truths of God and the gospel and the Trinity as found in God's word central in your life? And then secondly, are you one who by the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, are you one who by God's grace is walking in those truths by the power of the Holy Spirit? So ask yourself this day, where are you at with the objective truths of God and the gospel and the trinity? Are, are you starting to veer off course concerning objective truths in the word of God? Who Jesus Christ is, son of God, God the son. Born of the virgin, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, rose again on the third day, and is now exalted at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things. Do you believe that? What about God? And who he is? One God, three distinct persons. Or maybe you're starting to waffle on some of these essential things. What about the Bible itself? That's objective truth. That this is the word of God. That in fact all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or are you buying into some popular lies in our day? You remember the first lie that Satan put forth. What was it? Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say... And we have so many cynics in our day with reference to the word of God. Seeking to attack the scriptures again. The truthfulness of the word of God. This is Satan's old trick. He just keeps repeating it over and over again. And so where are you at today with the objective truths of the Bible? What about the gospel? You're holding to the gospel? The biblical gospel? That God is holy, God is just, and a just and holy God must punish sin? That man is sinful to the core. He's a rebel against God. He's stinking in the nostrils of God. He's under the wrath of God. He is a sinner by nature and a sinner by practice. The gospel tells us about God, tells us about man. The gospel, thirdly, tells us about Christ. The lovely substitute of sinners. The sinner's surety. The sinner's savior. Jesus Christ who at Calvary gave his life as the just one for the unjust ones to bring us to God. Jesus Christ who 2,000 years ago at the cross paid the debt of sinners in full. Was buried, rose again on the third day and now offers life and salvation to all who repent of their sins towards God and put their faith in him alone for salvation. Are you believing, dear sisters, these objective truths of the word of God? 
And I really must say it because, again, I've been a Christian 30 years, and there'll be periods in your life, my life, where you wouldn't even think to question any of these things. I remember when uh, people used to sing that uh, great hymn, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It, Prone to Leave the God I Love. And as a new Christian, I thought, that's not me at all. I don't, why would I wander from God? Prone to wander? I love God. He's redeemed me. Prone to leave the God I love? I didn't have one inkling in my heart to want to do that as a new Christian. I'm talking for 10, 15 years. But now serving the Lord 30 years, I tell you, that temptation has become more and more real to me over the years. Not that I want to do it. Not that I believe I will do it by God's grace. But that that is a reality. A reality I never felt before. A reality that the powers of hell never pressed to my soul until I was older in the Lord, almost 30 years walking with Christ. And so we must go back again and again. Are the objective truths of God's word that I believe the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and infallible, and sufficient for life, that God is my Savior, that Christ is both God and man in one person, that is, Crosswork actually accomplished my redemption. Oh, dear sisters, if we don't have these truths ever before us and in us, we are making ourselves susceptible to Satan. And so ask yourself, where are you here this day? And we need to be careful sometimes in our desire to do good to others. I, I thought about the sister here last night, how she said she was formerly in the seven-day Adventist. Okay, false church, false gospel. And so some of these people get your ear sometimes. And they preach a gospel of works, not a gospel of free grace. And in a sense, we preach a gospel of works as well. I tell people there is a work which gets you into heaven, only one work. It's called Jesus' work and Jesus' work alone. But we can listen to these people in our desire to want to evangelize them, the JW, this, that, and that. And as you're hearing all this stuff, be careful, sisters, because Satan is working in those groups. And you start questioning, wow, that's interesting thought. I never thought about that. If Jesus is God, how could he die? Hmm, interesting. That's what they say. Uh-huh. Problem is, Jesus is also man. God can never die. But the man, Jesus Christ, did die. He's one person with two natures. But again, as we interact with people, and you hear all this nonsense online and all of the skepticism which runs rampant in our day, it could kind of get us off from the truth of the Bible. And so we must be on guard. But then secondly, again, subjectively speaking, I ask you, dear sisters here this day, are you walking in the truths of the gospel in your life? Are you seeking to live holy before the Lord your God? Not compromising in any area. How's your thought life been? How's your desire for holiness been? Are you still repenting of your sins? Believing on Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Again, and if we are allowing areas of sin in our lives to go unchecked, Unmortified by the Spirit of God, Romans 8, we are making ourselves susceptible to Satan. And so ask yourself the question this day, are there areas in your life where you really need to shore up? Maybe it's how you treat your husbands. How are you treating your husbands? They're going to love me after this. <laughs> how are you treating them? I, I, I'm typically always barking at the men. But I got a bunch of ladies before me, and I could do that. Are you respecting your husbands? Respecting your husbands. It's very well known, but men, they want to feel like they're respected. But Paul commands it either way. Whether they're worthy of your respect or not is not the issue. Whether you're worthy of our love is not the issue. Paul says, love your wives. What if she's not a Christian? Um, he didn't say, love your Christian wives. 
said, love your wives, Christian or otherwise. Well, she's not very lovable. I don't care. <laughs> Neither are you. And Jesus still loved you. But ladies, are, are you loving your husbands? Paul says that in his letters and let the wives see that they love their husbands. Respecting your husbands, helping your husbands. And let me just clue you in on something. Your husbands need a lot of help. We need help. When God said, I'll make a helper suitable for you, I say, exactly. Because I need a lot of help. I honestly do. That's why he gave me my bride. But are, are you walking in these things? Seeking to be as holy as you possibly can be by the grace of God. And so, having seen first and most foundational, our initial protective spiritual gear that we are to put on so that we can stand well as believers against the devil, which is this belt of truth, the objective truths of God always before us and the subjective truths of God always within us, lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come with me now, secondly, to consider the breastplate of righteousness, as Paul speaks of it in the last half of our verse. Notice the words again. He says, by way of another command, that as an active part of our walk with God, we are to what? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, in a Paul's day, a soldier's breastplate was a thick layer of metal or leather uh, that covered him from his neck to his navel, both in the front and in the back. Now, this breastplate provided crucial protection from mortal wounds. And to be sure, what it did for the soldier greatly informs our understanding of spiritual warfare. And don't miss that. You ask, what's the point? Well, the point is this. Listen, just as a soldier's breastplate covered a central piece of, or rather was a central piece of his defensive armor while in battle, because it protected his vital organs, chiefly his heart. And dear sisters here today, so also our spiritual breastplate that God provides for us in Christ serves the same function for us in our battles with the devil as well. So just as a breastplate was a central piece of defensive armor for the soldier in battle because it protected his vital organs, namely his heart, so also our spiritual breastplate does the same for us in our battles with the devil. Let me state it this way and say that just as unthinkable as it would be for a soldier to go off to war without protecting his heart. Listen, sisters, it is even more unthinkable, more unthinkable for you and us as Christians that we would ever go into any battle with the devil without protecting ourselves in this way as well. Now, of course, when the Bible speaks about the heart, the heart, it's speaking about our entire inner man. In fact, according to Proverbs 4 and verse 23, the heart is where the issues of life spring from. And in Scripture, the heart represents all that we are as people. Well, listen, quite obviously then, listen, in view of all of these things, it's plain to see why Paul calls us to protect ourselves in this way. But the point is, if you and I leave our inner beings exposed to the attack of the enemy then without a doubt he can put us in a most deplorable condition, spiritually speaking, and what a tragedy that would be. If we're not protecting our hearts, he can put us in a most deplorable condition, spiritually speaking, and what a tragedy that would be. I say, dear sisters, if we allow him to penetrate us deep within with his accusations and his lies and his temptations, etc., then he can greatly influence us to live with such things as fear, such things as guilt, such things as anxiety, such things as depression and discouragement, 
just to name a few things. And so we ask, in view of this, when Paul uses this military metaphor of a breastplate of righteousness, or perhaps better understood, a breastplate which is righteousness, what is he referring to? Well, again, as I mentioned earlier with reference to the belt of truth, there are two popular opinions among the commentators. Why couldn't there just be one? There's two. And the first is what could be called the objective righteousness of Christ, which refers to the virtue and the perfection of the Lord Jesus, which has been credited to our account the moment we trusted in Jesus alone for life and salvation. The righteousness of Christ, his virtue imputed to us. His flawless virtue, his impeccable virtue, his righteousness credited to us, which, by the way, is the only thing which commends us to God Almighty. So this is an acceptable way of understanding the word righteousness here in our verse in view. But secondly, listen, the language could also refer to the moral righteousness. The moral righteousness, which you and I as Christians are to walk in as those who have been redeemed by the Lord. And so which is it? Is it the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ our Lord given to us by faith alone? Or is it the imparted righteousness of the believer which is meant to cover our hearts when the enemy seeks to attack us? To which I answer and say, I believe that it is both. I believe that it is both. This seems to be the case, scripturally speaking, but... First and foremost, I believe that if our inner beings, our hearts, are going to be kept safe from Satan and his lies and his deceits, then we must remember that because of Christ's righteousness, that because his virtue has been imputed to us, to our accounts, our standing before the Almighty God is absolutely secure. First and foremost, it has to be the righteousness of Christ. I say, here is where we must begin, dear sisters, thus to make it real practical for you. When Satan comes and whispers in your ear and says to you, you should be condemned because you're so wicked. I say that you are to say back to him with Paul in Romans 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, the Lord. Sisters, when the devil, as it were, comes to you in the heat of battle and accuses you, saying, what? You have fallen into the same sin again. Has anyone ever experienced that? (laughs) Again? Really again? ay 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 He's always there to accuse us. Why? Because he is the accuser of the brethren. When he comes and says, what? You have fallen into this sin again. Surely there is no forgiveness for you in Jesus Christ the Lord. Oh, sister, I say that you are to say back to him the words of Romans 8, verse 33 and following. And Paul said, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? How do you reply to him with the word of God? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Not you, Satan. It is Christ who died and who is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Glory be to his name. And so I ask, do you see how the righteousness of Christ is to function in spiritual warfare. You see, this is how you and I will always have an anchor for our souls, not by looking to ourselves, no, but by looking away from ourselves to the perfect Christ. When the devil would say this and that to us, 
oftentimes I say, you're absolutely right. It's all true. I'm as wicked as you've said. But thanks be to God, I stand clothed in the righteousness of another. And thanks be to God that because Jesus died for my sins and rose again on the third day, as the Father has accepted him, he so accepts me because of him. This is how the righteousness of Christ helps us in times like these. Thus, we can always say to the enemy of our souls when he seeks to bring a railing accusation against us, we can say with the hymn writer of old, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these array, with joy shall I lift up my head. We can say with the hymn writer, bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge lay, fully absolved. Through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Can anyone say amen? Amen. That's what we're talking about, sisters. That's how the objective righteousness of Christ shuts the mouth of Satan every time. Ah, but not only this second one. Listen, if in fact, listen, if in fact the devil is not going to have a just opportunity to condemn our hearts, listen, then obviously there needs to be from us a moral righteousness lived out by the power of God. There must be. Let me put it this way so simply. A holy life lived out by the grace of God will shut Satan's mouth every time he seeks to accuse us. He can't mess with a holy life. He'll try, and he'll seek to bring to our remembrance areas where we have not been holy. And then, of course, we throw back to him the righteousness of Christ. But if by the grace of God we have sought and we are seeking to repent of our sins and to mortify the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk blamelessly before God, I didn't say sinlessly, I said blamelessly. We're seeking to walk with gospel integrity. We're seeking to keep a conscience void of offense. I say, dear sisters here this day, If by God's grace you're doing that, it'll shut Satan's mouth every time. This is the case. And I say this because as we live righteously, putting on the new man who is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, the devil will have no just ground to accuse us. And so, in summing up these points, It seems to me that the breastplate of righteousness, which you and I are to put on daily, is both legal and ethical. That's how the Puritans put it forth. Legal in the courtroom of heaven. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ethical, by the grace of God, I'm seeking to keep myself in the narrow way which leads to life. Satan, you've got no just accusation against me. Putting these two together in summary form, it seems to me that this righteousness is that which is both positional and practical. Positional before God in the courtroom of heaven. Practical in my life as a Christian. And so, having seen in this message the first two articles of our spiritual equipment that we must put on as Christians if we're going to do well in spiritual warfare. And having already applied some of this to you who are Christians here this day, let me close with a word to any non-Christian. To you here who are not saved, what can I say to you, my dear friend, but simply this, listen, the two things that you desperately need most in your life to be protected from the adversary of your soul 
our truth and righteousness. The two things that you desperately need are truth and righteousness. You need truth so that you can be delivered from Satan's lies. And you need righteousness, even perfect righteousness, to cover all of your unrighteousness before God. And so, the simple question is this. Where are truth and perfect righteousness to be found? Where are truth and righteousness to be found? There's only one answer. The answer is Christ. Christ provides you with truth because he is the truth. And Christ provides you with perfect righteousness because perfect righteousness is what he worked out in his sinless life before God Almighty. That's what made him the one who was qualified to go to the cross to take the sins of sinners upon himself because he had never sinned. That's why he could be the sinner's substitute. Had Jesus sinned once in his life and thought, word, or deed, he would have needed a Savior. But he didn't need a Savior because he's sinless. He's perfectly righteous. And when he went to the cross, he went to the cross with the sins of sinners upon himself, and he was punished for their sins. And there at Calvary, he made a full and a free and a final atonement to God for the sins of sinners. He died in the place of the guilty. And he made a complete atonement for the sins of sinners at Calvary. He paid our debt in full. Thus he cried out saying, it is done. It is accomplished. It stands accomplished from this point forward and forevermore. And the Bible says when we repent of our sins that we've committed against God, our pride, our anger, our lust, our blasphemies, our fornication, our idolatries, our homosexualities, our drunkenness, all the rest, anger, all of those sins, when we see that Our sins have been an affront to the holy God of the Bible who promises that he must punish sin. For he says in his word, the soul that sins, it will surely die. This God who must punish our sins is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his only begotten son. How? To be our substitute, to be our standing, to be our surety, to be our Savior. Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. How does Jesus save us from our sins? By dying for them. And that's what he did at the cross. And when we believe upon him, our bad record is charged to his account and his perfect record is Imputed to us. So that before God, positionally speaking, we are now accepted in the beloved. Ephesians chapter 1. And Jesus gives us his truth and he leads us in the truth. And again, my dear non-Christian friend here this day, all that you need is to be found in one. It's Christ. It's Christ. He is perfectly suited to meet your deepest needs in life. May you be found then this day going to him by faith and asking him to save your soul, to to lead you in the truth. Be honest with him. I have not been walking in the truth. I have not been following the truth. And I'm certainly not righteous in myself, and I certainly have no righteousness to commend me to God. But, oh, Jesus... You offer everything that I need to be made right with God and to be safe from the snares of Satan. 
Oh, Jesus, make me a Christian. Save my never-dying soul. Call me by your grace and make me one of your own. Might it be that for some here, this day you came to this conference not a Christian, that you would leave as a Christian. Might it be that you'll find Jesus Christ to be the altogether lovely one, your own personal Savior. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are thankful that you provide for us all that we need in life and all that we need for death. We're so thankful, Lord, for so great a salvation, for so complete a salvation. You've left nothing out, oh God. You've covered us fully. And for all of these things, we bless your name. Thank you for making many in this room the recipients of such a wonderful gospel. Help us, Lord, to believe it more and to walk in its truths all of our days. Forgive us, Lord, where we have turned aside and help us even this day to renew afresh our commitments to serve you with all that we've got. Oh God, encourage us in this glorious direction. And for all of these things, we'll praise and bless your most wonderful name. We ask them through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.